a good afternoon, good evening, Shavua Tov, a good Vok to everyone, good Chodesh. Um, just before we begin, there's always the the customary sound check, just to make sure you can hear me, that uh, it's audible, it's clear. Just okay, great. Thank you. I've got uh, I've got the go ahead. So, without further ado, we will begin today's topic, which is the discussion on Bittel Baroiv, and generally the concept of Roiv, the concept of following the majority uh, in Torah and in Halacha. And we're going to take a particular approach and deal with a particular aspect of Roiv and Bittel Baroiv, of majority, and that is going to be to examine the position of the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher, and his definitions and his criteria, and how this definition will recur not only throughout the Isavaheta, the sections that you're covering for Smicha, but it also has far-reaching implications into other areas of Halacha as well. Now, there is no possible way that in an hour we are going to cover all of the different aspects of Roiv, of majority. It is a very large uh, and multifaceted area. Many different sugyas in Chulin, Bovakama, Zvochim. It just, it's, uh, it's just so far-reaching that there is no way that we could do an extensive uh, gathering of everything. But we will be able to focus on one aspect which unites all of these different uh, types of, uh, of, of halochas. And uh, that, is, uh, that is the goal for this morning. We will start with the, the Rosh and delve a little bit into the concept of Bittel Baroiv according to his perspective. And then we will see how this concept branches out into the field of Sfaxfeka and into the field of Brochas as well. Um, I'm going to try and fit this all into the time, but also to use uh, sections that I know we've covered as well together in the Shiurim over the past, uh, the past few months. Now, following the majority is, as we've seen, not necessarily a, uh, uh, a surefire way of anything which will be workable according to everybody. Um, I mean, uh, democracy has been termed by some as the tyranny of the majority over the minority. And it doesn't mean that if the majority of the people want a certain lifestyle, that that is going to be adequate for others and that that is necessarily the right way or the true way. So when we look at majority as determining the status of something, we need to be more uh, focused on what makes the majority so authoritative or what gives the majority its impetus 
that the Torah has recognized roiv or majority as being a way to determine the status of something. And that is really the, the, uh, the concept and the, the question that we, we need to answer this morning. So before we come to the principles, let's start at the very beginning. I'm not sure where you're all holding in uh, Taruvas and Bossa Bacholov. So I beg your indulgence if I insult your intelligence, but I am going to start right at the beginning for the sake of clarity that we're all on the same page. The concept of Bittel Baroiv, nullification by majority, is mentioned specifically in the area of Yovesh Biyovesh. What this means is as follows. If I have two pieces of meat, one piece of meat is heter, one is kosher meat, the other piece of meat is isur, non-kosher meat, and I cannot tell the two apart, each of those two pieces could potentially be the isur, and therefore, I would apply the rule of maybe sveker daraisa lechumra, that in cases of doubt, we need to treat each piece as if they were the piece of isur, or maybe ischazek isura, that once I know that I have one piece of isur for sure, that I need to treat both of the two as definite pieces of forbidden food, and that is what happens when a suffix presents itself of such a nature that each could each piece could potentially be the forbidden piece, and I would never be able to tell them apart. In an instance, however, when I have three pieces, two pieces being heter, two pieces of kosher meat, one piece being isser of non-kosher meat, and I cannot tell them apart, and each three, each of those three could potentially be the isser, then there is a different metric, which is bittel baroiv. That now, since I have majority heter, I can assume that all three pieces are heter, are permitted. And not only that, but according to the Rosh, the wording that he uses to describe bittel is that the isur ne pach liyoiz heter that the forbidden piece amongst the three transforms into a piece of permitted food itself, i.e. the isur, the, the prohibition is lifted, and all three pieces are now permitted to consume, even all at once, as if the isur is no longer there. That is the way that the Rosh defines Bittel Baroiv, and the mechanism of Bittel Baroiv, that once we have majority pieces of heter, then the isur nepach liois heter, the piece of forbidden meat, ceases to be, and all three pieces now become permitted. And it is at this point that we start the conversation, because it is not only the Rosh who holds this way, it is also the tour, and in a way, 
not not completely, but to some degree, the Machaber in the Shulchan Aruch in Simon Kuftes, and the Ramah as well, also relies on the Rosh at the end of Simon Kuftes. So this understanding of Bittel Baroiv, how the majority is able to transform the minority, is a strong enough dictum that we find the Poiskim relying on it and basing their opinions on the Rosh in the sense as well. Now, the question that the Meforshim, that the various commentators have, and this is where we begin our dissection of the Halochen of the Rosh, is that the Rosh has basically innovated this definition of Bittel. If we look through the Gomorrahs, if we look through the Mishnayas, we won't find a Mishnah that says when the minority is bottled to the majority, is nullified in the majority, that the minority transforms into the majority. We don't find any Mishnah that says that. We don't find any Gomorrah that says that. The origin of this notion of Nepach, that the status of the minority can change completely, was first presented by the Rosh. And the Meforshim grapple as to where the Rosh based this, uh, this rather novel and quite revolutionary understanding of what happens with Bittel, where is he basing it on when the classical sources of the Gomorrah and the Mishnayas don't seem to indicate? So there is, there is a Mishnah, which I'm going to mention in a moment, where it does, it does seem to be like the Rosh. But the principle of Nepach was formulated and uh, articulated by the Rosh for the first time. Now, again, before we continue, today's discussion is going to center around the Rosh, and primarily because the Rosh is the basis for many different uh, poiskim. There are other views in the Rishonin, and there are other mechanisms by which we understand uh, Bittel Baroi, but I'm not going to mention that today. Maybe at another time, we can come back and revisit the Sugya. But for now, let us stay with the opinion of the Rosh and we're going to look at uh, his particular angle and those who hold like him. Another question that bothers the Meforshim is the fact that the Rosh, uh, together with other Rishonim, all base, all cite, a pasuk in the Torah as being the origin of the law of Bittel Baroif. And the verse that they cite is Acharei Rabim Lahatois, where the Torah says that we will be inclined after the majority. The Gomorrah doesn't state this. Again, it is the Rishonim 
in the 1100s and the early 1200s who propound that the source of Bittel Baroiv, of this halacha, originated amongst the laws of Dayonim, of court systems, which is spelled out in the Torah in Parshas Mishpatim. The Torah says that when there is a dispute amongst judges, then we will follow the majority if the majority of the judges rule in favor of the defendant or in favor of the accused, we will follow the majority. But if the judges want to, are divided in their opinion to the detriment of the accused, then there needs to be a vast majority, a majority of two. But we're not going to take a look at the laws of Dionys at the moment. We're looking merely at the source that the concept of Bittel Baroiv is predicated upon the law of Dionys of how the majority opinion in a court will sway the decision. So this is what the Rishonim and what uh, particularly the Rosh base themselves on when they say that in the same way as the Torah main, maintains acharei rabbim lahatois, follow majority of opinion when there is a conflict and it is the majority opinion that will overrule the minority, so too, when it comes to mixtures, where each piece, so you have three pieces and each piece could potentially be the forbidden piece, that it is the majority of the pieces which will overrule the status of the minority and will determine now that the minority is also considered permissible, just like the majority. Nepach, that the prohibited piece now takes on the status of the majority permitted ones. So this is how the Rosh learns from the Torah that there is this idea of Nepach, that the minority take on the permissibility of the majority in the same way as the, the, uh, the opinions of majority judges overrule the opinions of the minority in determining what the final verdict will be. Now, the Mephoshim are concerned with this comparison because here too, surely something so fundamental as a concept which was not mentioned in the Torah, i.e. Bittel Baroiv, Kashrus, surely that concept should have been dealt with in the Gomorrah because we find in all areas, all aspects of halacha, that when we delve into the, the origins and when we look into the Gomorrahs, there we will find droshes. We will find ways that the Gomorrah, that the oral Torah has extrapolated from the psukim various halachas that are not evident within the wording, that within the text of the Torah itself, and that is something which we can understand because that is under the ambit of Talmudic hermeneutics and Talmudic uh, e extrapolation, which is how the Torah Balpeh, the oral Torah, dovetails with the written Torah. So that, that we can understand. However, when the Talmud omits a, a seminal teaching, 
and a drosha, which should be Talmudic in nature, and it is the Rishonim who create the drosha, who compare and who extrapolate from the written Torah, that is a question because it seems strange that a principle so cardinal should have been omitted by the Talmud and yet uh, very freely presented by the Rishonim. And so the Mephoshim are bothered, where did the Rosh see the comparison between Kashrus eating pieces of meat to Dionys, to judges, and how the opinion of the majority sway the minority? Is it a fortuitous comparison? Is it just happenstance? Where did the Rosh see the comparison to be able to draw from an unrelated area of halacha to apply to the laws of Kashrus? What the Mephoshim are also bothered by is another question, a third question, is the Talmud itself takes it for granted that there is this idea, there's this notion of Bittl Baroiv. But the Talmud itself does not seem to uh, ferret out the origins in the Torah in the Gomorrahs in Chulim, the Gomorrah casually asks the question, let the Isur be bottle baroiv. But the Gomorrah nowhere launches into a discussion of bittel minatoira minayin. Where do we find this idea of bittel baroiv? Yes, the Gomorrah in Chulim does delve into the origin of bittel bashishit, of nullification in 60. And yes, the Gomorrah in Chulin on Dafyud Halaf delves into the discussion of Roiv, generally how majority plays a role in determining halacha. However, the idea of Bittelber where one piece of forbidden food amongst two now becomes permitted to consume, there we don't find the Gomorrah looking for the source in the Torah. We, we find the Gomorrah just saying, let the isur, let the forbidden piece be bottled in the majority as if it's axiomatic, it's a given. And we need to understand why the Gomorrah finds the concept of Bittel Baroiv axiomatic if any concept really needs to have its origins in something scriptural. So that's a third question that the Mephoshim debate. The fourth question, and the last one, is, and this, this is something which, if you haven't come across it yet, you will come across, and it's, it's good to be aware of now, is a question that the Shach raises on the Rosh himself. The Shach I'm referring to is in Simon Tzaditess, and it's the Shach Sif Cotton. Chof Aleph. The subject is Choyzev Neir, how once an Isur, a piece of forbidden food is bottled, whether it stays bottled, whether the stages can change. And the Shach quotes the Rosh and he notes the following. 
when the Rosh maintained that the Isser is Nepach Leo's Heter, that when you have a majority of permitted pieces and the one piece of forbidden food now takes on the status of the majority and it becomes permitted, that dynamic can change, says the Rosh, in that if another piece of Isser, another piece of forbidden meat falls in amongst the three, and now that leaves us with the ratio of two pieces of heter meat to two pieces of isser meat, then the Rosh maintains that the bittle is reversed. And although the one piece of isser was permitted, now that there is no longer a majority of is of heter of, of permitted pieces anymore, it is now an equal amount of heter to isser, then the bittle baroiv is reversed, and all four pieces now revert back to becoming sfakas, each piece becoming doubtful and potentially the forbidden piece, and now all of the pieces are not allowed to be eaten. That's the Rosh. The Shach in Sif Koten Chof Aleph has an issue with this, and he brings a Mishnah in Masechta Orla, which seems to contradict and disprove the Rosh entirely here. And that is the Mishnah says that when Orla is bottled, if one has a uh, collection of different produce, which is all chulin, it's all permitted produce to eat, and one unit of Orla of forbidden fruit within its third, within its first three years, falls into this batch of permitted fruit, the Orla is bottled. It's bottled in another ratio, not majority, but in another ratio, whether it's 100 or 200, different opinions. But there is a mass of permitted fruit. One unit of Orla fruit falls into the batch, becomes lost within the batch, and the Orla is now bottled. The Mishnah says that if more orla fruit has to fall into the batch, then that too will be bottled. That will also become nullified. And one can use the first unit of orla that fell into the batch to combine with all the permitted fruit that was there to begin with to mavatal, to have now an amount sufficient to mavatal the second unit of orla that falls in. So from this Mishnah, we see that once forbidden foods have become bottled, they've become nepach, they have transformed and they've become permitted, they stay permitted. And if more orla, if more forbidden foods fall into the mixture, then whatever forbidden food fell in originally is permitted and it combines with the original amount of permitted food to mavatl the new forbidden food that falls in as well. So not only is bittel irreversible, argues the shach from this Mishnah, but that once bittel has occurred and the forbidden food has taken on, the, uh, the, uh, the status has changed and it's now become permitted food, that permitted food, that a newly acquired permitted, permitted food combines with the original permitted food and is allowing now for more bittel. 
So in that way, the Shach raises a serious issue with the Rosh, that how can the dynamic change when more forbidden food falls into the mixture? On the contrary, Bittel is an absolute. Once the prohibited food has become permitted, it stays permitted, as is evident from this Mishnah in Ola, a Tanaic source, which would therefore disprove the Rosh, that Bittel is conditional. So that is the fourth question, a question that the Shach himself raises on the Rosh, and therefore the Shach takes a different approach in, uh, in Paskening the Halacha, but be that as it may, it is still a question on the Rosh that needs to be addressed, and it is that which we will now address too. Right, so where, where are we holding in the discussion so far? We have presented the Rosh and his mechanism of Bittel Baroif, which is Nepach. Isur, Nepach, Leos Heter. Once there's majority against the piece of Isur, it transforms into the Heter, into permitted food. We had some questions on this. Some of the Achronim, the Mephoshim, ask where the Rosh got this halacha from, how he compares it to majority opinion in a court, why the Talmud didn't address something so seminal. And the fourth question is that of the Shach, that the Rosh who maintains that Bittel is conditional, it seems from the Mishnah and Ola that such is not the case. So these are the four questions that we're going to come back and answer on the Rosh. It's not exactly the four questions you had at the Seder, but it's always good to have four questions to answer at some point in uh, in Jewish life. So not the four questions for Nissan, but the four questions for ER. Before we come to answer these questions, let us take a look at one more important line within the Rosh. And that is the Rosh writes his opinion by prefacing it by calling Bittel Baroiv Xerus Akosov. Xerus Akosov would literally translate as a decree from the Torah. And our primary understanding of Xerus Akosov is that it is a principle that is beyond our understanding, that is not necessarily uh, led to explanation, but rather a law which is passed down, which is beyond human comprehension. That is the uh, sort of ordinary understanding of Xerus Akosov, of what these, this phrase means. However, there are thinkers within halacha and within uh, Talmudic, uh, Talmudic investigation who opine otherwise, that Xerus Akosov does not necessarily mean a phenomenon which is beyond human comprehension, but rather accommodates something which is human something which is rational. It's just that had the Torah not stated it, had the Torah not allowed us to use our rational approach, then 
we would not have been bold enough to impose our rational understanding on the halachas, on the dictates of the Torah itself. But that Xerus Akosov is in some way rooted in rationale and in human intelligence in our, uh, our view of, of life and our perspectives as well. And it is at this point that we will begin the discussion now that when the Rosh says, Bittel Baroiv and Isune Pachlios that we follow the majority and that the piece of forbidden food now becomes permitted to eat as if it were one of the majority pieces of permissible food, and this is Xerus Akosov. What the Rosh means is that there is some rational understanding, and there is a reason why, had the Torah not given us the laws of Bittel Baroiv, that logic would have dictated such that there should be this notion of Bittel Baroiv. It's just that we wouldn't have been able to impose this notion in the realm of halocha. That is Xerus Akosov. That uh, rationale is something which the Torah recognizes and allows us to implement within Bittel Baroiv. Now, before we continue, the following uh, questions and the following analysis has been uh, uh, dealt with before by the various achronim, Rav Chaim Briska, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, the Briska Rov, and the Chidusha Hagrach. He has one approach to understanding the Rosh and the, uh, the concept of Bittel Baroiv. Uh, another approach was adopted by Rav Shimon Shkop, by the Rosh Yeshiva of Grodno, in his work Shara Yoshe. So we we do find amongst the Talmudists that there is a uh, there is some sort of approach to understanding it. However, what we're going to take a look at now is an approach which was put forward uh, by the late Rabbi Gedalia Nadel. He passed away. In the, in the 1950s, or the early 60s. And his approach to this differs from the classic approach, but it does open up the sugya in many different ways. And so part of what we're going to, what I'm going to discuss now is based on the, uh, the innovations of the late Rabbi Gedalia Nadel and uh, incorporate some of the other Mephoshim as well. So here we go with an explanation of what Xerus Akosov is and how we uh, reached this idea of Bittel Baroiv to begin with. When the Torah says that one can follow the majority, it is based on a human phenomenon to illustrate this phenomenon, if I had to mention that I have just seen a green field, I have passed by a field and it is a green field. What you understand from that is that I haven't only seen green plants growing in a field. 
because within the fields there will be a few stray flowers or uh, uh, burnt uh, leaves and foliage. What one understands is that if I see a green field, it is because most of the plants growing in that field are green. And because of the overwhelming amount, the quantity of greenery, the eye is tricked into believing that everything within that field is green. But if I had to stop and I had to examine each plant individually, then I would discern, the eye would discern differences of colors and hues. But because the eye and the mind and perception works on a broad scale, when one thinks and uh, when one appraises a situation, one usually brushes with broad strokes and one takes in the entire situation and the mind processes the situation based on the majority by most of the uh, most of what presents itself in that situation. We tend to ignore the majority, the, the, the minority in favor of the broader perception that we take in in one uh, in one go. That is the way that the mind uh, perceives and translates what one sees in one uh, in one go. It looks the mind takes in the majority takes in what is mostly there quantitatively and interprets the situation as being the majority, what is happening with the majority until such time as I isolate units, isolate pieces from the setting and examine them on their own, at which point they are examined individually and not based on the majority. So this is a human factor in the way that we perceive our world, we look at a situation in front of us and whatever is there, whatever is mostly there, just at a, a glance, a general glance, the mind tends to perceive as being the situation or determining what is the, uh, what is the image and what is the perception, the general perception I have of the various uh, factors or the various issues that I'm dealing with. And in a way, this is what happens when I have a mixture, when I have three pieces of permitted food, one piece of forbidden food, and I cannot tell them apart. If I cannot isolate the forbidden food from the mixture, and I don't see the forbidden food standing on its own, then the perception is to see all three pieces as if they were melding into one type of food or that their status is all confused and unknown. And I logically, since I cannot isolate the iso, the forbidden food, I would perceive them naturally 
as being going after the majority, as being a unit which is predominantly permissible food. Now, that is a logical deduction. That is a theory. That is, a, that is speculation. And I would not be able to use that speculation to impose the law of Bittel Baroiv and now assume that the one piece of forbidden food is permitted just like all the others. I would need permission from a higher power to be able to utilize the rationale of perception of majority. And that higher power is what the Rosh is referring to when he calls Bittel Baroiv Xeros Akosov. The Torah has granted permission to use the phenomena of majority, of human perception of a situation based on the majority of what is in that situation and use that per human perception to determine what the status of the, of the forbidden food will be amongst the others. So the concept of Bittel Baroiv is not so much using the majority to change the status of the minority, but rather from the, on, from the outset, the person who is about to eat the mixture, because he is not sure of which piece is the Isser, which two pieces are the Heter, all are in doubt, in his mind, since most are permitted, he sees the situation as being predominantly permissible. But on the odd chance that he may eat the piece of Isser, he's not permitted to eat anything until the Torah grants him permission to rely on his perception, which is that the predominant factors, what he perceives as predominantly permissible, is in fact allowing him to make everything permissible. So I'm going to come to another point a little bit later when I talk about Svexveka. But at this point, the idea of Bittel Baroiv is a logical, oh, semi-logical, if we can say, factor, which is a concept, which is based on human perception of seeing a situation based on the majority of what presents itself in that situation. And that is an allowance that the Torah has made to permit eating the pieces, all three pieces of meat or food in this situation. Now, to answer all of the questions, the first question, where does the Rosh see Bittel Baroiv in the Torah? So he sees it, as he mentioned, as Xerus Akosov, as the Torah allowing one to rely on human perception, on the natural tendency of human beings to appraise their environment based on the majority of what they see and what they feel, what they're more tending towards in that environment. The second question was, how does Bittel Baroiv relate to the laws of judges and a majority of opinion? So here too, when the Torah lays down the, the principle of acharei rabbim lahatois, that one can follow majority opinion, it's not because the majority of the judges are necessarily right or are truthful. 
It's just that when there are majority of opinions, then to the disputants, to the litigants or to the accused, it appears as if this is what has really transpired, or even more so, the Torah allows majority of the judges to set and formulate what the halachic reality is going to be in a situation. For majority, majority of the views of the Dayanim have influenced the situation and have influenced the halacha in such a way that there is a predominance towards one side of the argument. And it is precisely what the Torah is saying, that the Torah says, we are inclined towards the majority. For that is the normal way that the human mind works. It sees a situation usually based on the majority of what is in that situation. And so that is the comparison between kashrus and between judges disputing that the majority sways the opinion because the majority of what was presented in the hearings amongst the, the, uh, the judges will sway everyone's understanding of what the situation looks like or what uh, actually unfolded in their minds amongst the disputants or amongst the, uh, the accused. The third question was, why doesn't the Talmud root out, find the root origin of this halacha of Bittl Baroiv? Why does the Talmud take it as axiomatic and state the libotel Baruba? And the answer to that is also because the, the Talmud takes this idea of majority, majority, whether it's opinions, pieces of meat, or uh, phenomena, as influencing the human perception and how that, uh, that is axiomatic as the human mind will uh, take in their environment in a certain way and the Torah recognizes the human psyche as determining what is majority and allowing us to use that in the, uh, the formulation of halachas. The fourth question was that of the Shach, how the Mishnah in Orla holds that once forbidden foods are bottled, they tend to stay bottled, whereas the Rosh is saying that Bittel Baroiv can fluctuate, it can the dynamic can, can change. And the answer to that is that because Orla that falls into a batch of other fruit is a different metric altogether in that the, the permitted fruit that was there from the outset was either 100 or 200, and the bittle of Orla is not based on the concept of roiv, of majority, but rather a different set of circumstances. That is why when the Orla fruit is bottled, it stays bottled. The Rosh, however, was dealing with a situation of where you were relying on the majority of pieces, two against one, to begin with. And if another piece of Issa falls into the mixture and changes this dynamic to now become two pieces of Hetzer to two pieces of Issa, then we no longer have the perception that the mixture is predominantly permitted, but rather that there is an equal chance of coming across the Issa as coming across the Hetzer 
And therefore, the question on the Rosh from Orla does not apply it. We can answer on behalf of the Rosh that Bittl Baroyv is different to Orla, which is Bittl Bameya, Bittl Bamatsayim, where the metrics are different and where the mechanism is different. And there, when it comes to Orla, it could very well be that if when reached a point where there was majority Orla and minority produce, permitted produce, that here too the Rosh would say the dynamic would change and that the Orla does in fact become part of the amount of Issa, of, of forbidden fruit. It's not an absolute that change that, that, that's, that's not subject to fluctuation too. So in that way, we can answer on behalf of the Rosh that Bittl Baroyv is different from Orla and that one cannot bring the Mishnah of Orla as a disproof against the, the Rosh anymore. Now, where that leaves us at this point in the discussion is that the principle of Bittl Baroyv, of majority, where the majority of a given set of factors or the majority of units within a mixture determine the status of the entire mixture is only because human perception is such that we tend to look at everything based on the majority of what's there, of what presents itself glaringly to us. And that is the basis of the Rosh holding that Isur Nepach Leo's Heter, that the piece of Isur transforms into Heter only because we, the consumer, will view the mixture as predominantly permissible. And because we cannot isolate the Isur, because it's all a suffix, all these pieces are in doubt, and we cannot isolate the Isur, the forbidden piece on its own, our minds would tend to look at the mixture as predominantly permissible, which is good enough in order to eat suffolk, in order to eat foods which are doubtfully permissible. Now, with that in mind, we can meander a little bit off the topic, and we can now go on and leave the subject of Bittl Baroyv and address another area, a second issue, which is that of Svex Faker. Svex Faker means that there are two doubts, two independent doubts over foods, or it could be anything, but I'm going to stick to the example of food, over food, whether it is permissible to eat. This is the subject which is dealt with in Simon Kuf Yud extensively where a double doubt, a food which started off as being forbidden, but has become doubtful whether it is forbidden. And then a second doubt on top of that, whether the food has become forbidden. And in such a situation, even if the food were forbidden from the start, and it were a, a derisa, even a biblical prohibition, still sfex faker, when you have two doubts, one is allowed to eat the food. So one an, an example is that if there was an egg that was laid from a chicken, the chicken was then 
uh, shechted, viscerated, and then discovered to be a suffolk trafer. Could have been that there was an issue with the with the chicken, which would therefore carry through to the egg. The egg would be a suffolk trafer, but this egg was then mixed with other eggs. And then one of those eggs was mixed with a batch of other eggs. So in your final batch of eggs, you have so many multiple doubts whether the problematic egg is there to begin with. And even if it is there, who's to say that the egg was a problem to begin with? It was at most a suffolk trafer. It was doubtful whether the egg even originated from a forbidden source. When you have so many doubts at your disposal, then it is all of the eggs would be permitted to eat. And likewise, any situation where you would have more than one doubt over the food, Sveik Sveika, two doubts, Mutter are permitted to allow the food to be eaten. Now, we find an interesting commentary of the Rashba. The Rashba, in his Chuvas, Simantov Aleph, puts forward that a Sveik Sveika, the permissibility to eat, a food where there is a double doubt over its uh, permissibility is predicated upon the din of roif, of majority. Meaning that since there are majority reasons to permit the egg, in our example, or to permit the food, one may consume the food. Now, all of the Mephorshim, we have the Pnei Yeshua, we have so many different Mephoshim that launch into a discussion on the Rashba that Svex Faker, the, the, the idea of foods in doubt being based on the law of Roiv, of majority, presents so many difficulties in our understanding. How is the Rashba comparing Svex Faker to doubts to majority, where we look at majority of factors as influencing the status, the halachic status of a food stuff. So without getting into all of the, uh, the details and getting mired in all of the minutiae, based on our understanding of the Rosh, that what majority does in a situation will give us a clearer understanding of what the Rashba meant when he said that Svex Faker is predicated upon the law of majority. When I have a food that is doubtful whether I'm allowed to eat it or not, because I don't know if I were to go ahead and eat the food, because I don't know that I have in fact consumed forbidden foods, then the punishment would be lighter. One wouldn't be held liable from the Torah's point of view for eating forbidden foods unless one knew and one was culpable for eating a forbidden food. But once there's a suffix, once there's a doubt, then my perception of the food is that maybe it's not so serious, maybe it isn't that, that forbidden. And when I do eat the food, it isn't willful and spiteful. It is on a whim that perhaps I'm not eating forbidden foods at all, which would therefore mean that if I have two doubts, if I have a compounded reason to see the food as being permitted in that it is way it was beyond uh, beyond suspicion now it is tending towards more being that the food is permitted than it is being forbidden then because my perception of the food 
is that I am eating something which is probably more permitted than, than, than forbidden. This allows the food to be eaten even even in the, uh, in the first place. And again, because my perception, human perception over a food which is subject to sveik is that the food is probably more permitted than it is forbidden. That is why the Rashba compares Sveik or draws the origin of Sveik from the uh, idea of Roiv, of majority, because the, the law of majority is also predicated upon human perception, that when a person sees the mixture as being more permitted than it is forbidden, the Torah allows him to go ahead and eat the mixture, Lechatchila, and the same logic would apply to Sveik says the Rashba, that once I see the food itself as being more permitted than it is forbidden, the Torah allows me to eat the food, again, based on human perception of how that food stands in his mind, in his, uh, in his psyche. So with that in mind, we can explain the Rashba quite clearly that Sveik is indeed rooted in the law of Roiv, which is also rooted in the law of, uh, of human perception. So I see I have three minutes. I'm going to use these three minutes. I apologize if I go a little bit over time, but I, I would like to draw in one last example of where this idea that majority uh, ma and majority perception of, uh, of the human perception sways the law. And that is to go back to a previous year that we had some time ago where I discussed the laws of brochas, that the brocha that one makes over ikar and toffel, over the main food, that that brocha will cover the subservient food. And we mentioned a, a scenario of, and I'm not going to go, go into all of those particulars again, uh, I believe that the shiurim are archived, and if anyone would like to get hold of them, uh, I'm sure uh, Rabbi Kesselman or myself, we can we can go back and take a look at the records. But the the one thing that we mentioned in that discussion was that if you have a mixture of foods and one is eating all of the foods together, particularly uh, this was the opinion of the Alter Rebbe as well, if one is eating a mixture of foods which on their own would receive, none of them would receive the bracha of Baremine Mazoinois, it's not pastry, if they were all shahakols, they were all barepria eats, barepria dama. If one would be eating the foods on their own individually, one would be making a shahakol or barepria eats or barepria dama. But because they're all mixed together, one now has to discern what brocha to make over the mixture. Here again, we have the rosh in Masechta Brochas, who holds that we go by the majority. And here as well, when we discussed the Rosh, there was no source in the Gemara. The Rosh took it for granted that we follow the majority. And so if one was eating uh, chocolate or let's say a yogurt with muesli in or yogurt with fruit, where the brocha over the yogurt is shahakol, but the brocha over the fruit is barepria eats, and the majority of the food that one was eating was the yogurt, according to the Rosh, one would make the brocha of, of, of shahakal, which would cover the fruit as well. 
purely because the yogurt is in the majority. Here too, the Rosh didn't give a source. The Gomorrah doesn't state this. The Rosh deduced this on his own. And so, based on what we've just seen, we can answer and we can explain the Rosh quite clearly now, that in the laws of brochas as well, because one makes the brocha over the food that one is enjoying, hanor, that one is benefiting from, one is enjoying, if one tastes the yogurt and one senses the texture of the yogurt and the taste maybe of the yogurt, that, uh, that savory, that tart taste that the yogurt has in one's mouth or the creaminess of the yogurt, that texture, because that is the majority of food that one is eating, one tends to notice the majority and the minority, the pieces of fruit in the mixture, are tend to be glossed over. It's only when one removes the fruit and one concentrates on eating the fruit itself that one becomes aware of the fruit, the taste of the fruit, the sensation of the texture in the mouth. And uh, maybe then one would make a separate brocha on the fruit. But in the absence of, uh, of actually isolating the minority fruit food, the majority of the food gives the overwhelming sensation of what one is eating at the time. And therefore, it is the brocha over the majority that would determine the brocha over the entire mixture. And that is why the Rosh holds that it is the majority that one makes the brocha over for the same reason that the Rosh held of Nepach, that Bittl Baroiv is based on what the person perceives to be in the majority, to be the overwhelming sensation of what he is, uh, what he is eating. So in this instance as well, in our example of Hilchas Brochas, here too we see another corollary of this principle of Roiv, how the majority determines based on how the person who is eating the food and making the brocha is enjoying the, 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 what is in the majority to enjoy and how the minority sort of slips under the radar until one actually gives uh, the, the minority its dues as well. And so the principle of roiv, of majority, applies to brochas. And not only that, but we find the rosh, once again, entertaining the same principle of roiv as being the human experience in determining what the brochas will be in the same way as the rosh held that when it comes to bittel baroiv, it is the human mind and the human perception that also determines what the status of the mixture is going to be. So in summation, the concept of roiv, of majority, is based on the way that we see and the way that the mind's eye or that the mind will interpret a situation and that the Torah gives credibility to the human perception to determine in certain areas what the halacha is going to be, whether it's bittel baroiv, the iso nepach heter, that the iso takes on the law of the majority, whether, like the Rashba subscribes, Sveksveka, that the person feels that the food is more permitted than it is forbidden, or whether it is the law of brochas, what benefit is he having? What does he sense he is having benefit and enjoying the most in the mixture, which would be determined by the majority of what his taste sensations would be picking up? And 
Not only that, but we find that the Rosh himself is consistent in his view of what Roiv can do in the face of Halacha and how the other Poiskim, the Tur, the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, the Alter Rebbe, are basing themselves heavily on the Rosh as well and how it fits together, how the majority, the concept of majority is consistent within the Rosh, his view, and how it can be woven into various different areas of halacha as well. So although the, the discussion has been centrally over the Rosh, and we haven't really looked at some of the other opinions, the Rosh's opinion is quite glaring and speaks for itself. And we can understand then why so many other Poiskim build their other opinions on the foundation, on the cornerstone of the Rosh. And it also gives us a sense of how uh, how the Torah is not a dogma, how the Torah is not imposed upon humankind, but rather allows for the human experience to manifest within the halacha. For unlike perhaps mathematics or statistics, where there is a symbolic uh, representation of reality within numbers and within figures, rather the Torah is very much rooted in the reality of day-to-day -day life, the human perspective of the world, and how the personal interaction with one's environment can be regulated but also sublimated with halacha, with the godliness within the Torah itself. So before we move on from halacha into other realms of philosophy and chassidus, but I think we're going to cut it at this point. So... Wishing you all a, a good Chodesh, Chodesh Tov, Shavua Tov, and Mirz uh, Hashem. We will uh, have many, many more occasions to delve into these concepts, hopefully to clarify them and to enjoy the, the depth and the beauty of uh, this wonderful Torah, this wonderful gift that uh, we have been given to learn and to understand. Yes, Shukaya.